I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking podcast. The thing coming up next. Haven't seen it with Tim Sestito and Tommy Tevenang. Hello, everybody. Welcome on in. Thank you all so much for listening today. This is a podcast where one of us is watching a movie for the very first time. And today, that person is myself. Tommy, I'm watching one of your favorites today, bud. Hey, yeah. How, how'd you feel? Do you uh, see, see where I was going there with that? <laughs> I, I don't know if I can trust you, dude. Honestly. Like, I, how can you watch this movie and trust anybody ever again? Yeah, pretty much. It's just everyone could be the thing. You never know, you know. Even the person that's the thing doesn't know that the thing. Exactly, dude. That's the uh, that's the uh, terrifying thing about it. So John Carpenter's The Thing, the 1982 classic. It's a remake of a movie from the 50s, right? That didn't do well, if, I, if I'm informed correctly. Well, neither did this one, but uh, that's it. We'll get we'll get to that. But um, the thing was, uh, it was called the Thing from Another World, a 1950s movie, and um, yeah, it's a, it's a remake of that. Well, uh, yeah, we'll get into this movie not doing that well financially, but I mean, this is a near perfect film. This is the thing. It's origin. Man. John Carpenter's The Thing, the ultimate in alien terror, rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. So this movie, Tommy, you're the horror guy out of the two of us. Where does this rank for you among your favorite horror movies? I think that on this rewatch, or honestly, like even before this rewatch, this might be my top ten movies of all time. This movie... There's very few holes you can pick, pick uh, pull, poke in it to say like, oh, why it's like bad or anything like that. And I think that just everything that this movie holds up, the special effects are still great. And it's just perfect. Like a near perfect movie. <laughs> the practical effects are insanely well done. Uh, they still hold up to this day. Um, it's one of those things about the practical effects that like they uh, did like a sequel to this in 2011, um, which was kind of forgettable. And one of the reasons why that was forgettable is because they use CGI. Like if this movie was made today, obviously you'd read so much CGI and it'd probably look fake and wouldn't look nearly as good and just look kind of like shitty and take you out of the movie. So, you know, you miss like the days of practical effects when like they were just, this is like almost the ultimate degree of practical effects right here. Yeah, who is it? David Coletti was the lead or one of the leads on the- uh... No, um, the lead was uh, Rob uh, Botain. Um, Rob Botain. was 22 years old when he uh, made this movie. He, uh, the other credits you might know him on, he did uh, The Howling, Robocop, Basic Instinct, which we covered, uh, Seven, Mission Impossible, and Fight Club. So, you know, he's had a really great career, obviously, after this movie. He put in so much fucking work into the special effects that he would stay on set overnight. And it got to the point that he literally had to go to the hospital for exhaustion because he was doing this like 24-7, just living, breathing this movie. <laughs> and you have to commend the effort. 
I'm just listening to the fact that he was 22 years old and I'm just like, God damn, this dude was making the thing. He was 22 years old. Yeah, that that like reminds me of like Spielberg, like you're, you know, your first big opportunity in Hollywood and you're not going to squash that chance. And the guy's just literally working all overnight. Um, I know Spielberg after Jaws, like he had a panic attack and like collapsed in a hospital after that. The special effects, but I also, I wanted to mention the lighting. I really loved how this movie was shot. Like, I love how, like, when it's outside, it's, like, during the day, it's nice and clear, but most of it takes place at night. And the way that it's, like, got this, like, bluish tint to it, and when they light the flares, it's almost a little purplish around Mm -hmm. that face. It's just such good cinematography. There's, there's even some scenes where like a certain character, that's the thing, like you notice that all the other characters, what you see on rewatches, is that like the other characters that aren't the thing, like their eyes are clear and you can see everything, but you can see like the light, uh, the eyes of like the guy who's supposed to be the thing is slightly darker or just like obscured a little bit, just in the way that they lit the shot. And um, one of the best parts about the cinematography by uh, Dean Cundy is, you know, with the special effects, he knew how to light it just perfectly that it showed enough but it didn't give you so much. I was just like, ah, oh, this, this looks fake. You could see like the strings or whatever. So they don't allow that to happen. <laughs> no. Uh, and Dean Cundy had like an interesting career too. Like he did Jurassic Park. He did some like really massive hits um, in like yeah. the nineties and the early two thousands. And then somehow that man ended up doing Jack and Jill. And it's, you, you know, he must've just been on that set being like, what, what happened to me, man? What, what went wrong? I think it's artistic integrity at that point. I was like, whatever, because he also did Garfield, it looks like. No, of his actual good movies. I mean, he shot like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like said Jurassic Park, even Back to the Future. And people wouldn't even realize on like Roger Rabbit, especially like how important the lighting is in that, because that's what makes the, the animation effect work so well there is the way that the lighting is balanced and how the cartoons are the animated to shade to like really fit into the world. Um, I remember watching a video from Captain Kristen. It's this guy on YouTube. Definitely check his channel out. The theory was called Bump the Lamp. There's a scene where he bumps the lamp around or whatever. And it was about how when the lighting changes like that, keeping the animation cells like changing and keeping the shadows changed to make them feel realistic. And like that is a huge testament to the animators, but a huge testament to the cinematography as well. It's great. I mean, Dean Cundy, I mean, he got into this movie because he was pretty much a frequent collaborator Carpenter. He did pretty much all Carpenter's early movies, like the Halloween, the Fog, Escape from New York, and even like the produced sequel to Halloween that John Carpenter did. So, you know, he just brought back to us well right here. And he's like, I know this guy can do the work for me. <laughs> Is this John Carpenter's best movie? I'd have to say so. I mean, like I said, there's not much you could say, uh, say against it. It's just so great to that degree. And, um, you know, I love John Carpenter. He's one of my favorite directors, but um, this movie just is on, I feel like, a, almost a whole nother tier than some of his other movies. I, I think on a technical level, absolutely. I still think I enjoyed Big Trouble and Little China a bit more just because it was so fun and zany and just another Kurt Russell collaboration. Uh, Kurt Russell is just great in all his John Carpenter depictions uh not counting escape from la of course oh no he's still great in that <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take snakes surfing on, on, in, in la any time of the week <laughs> listen it's cheesy it's fun but like 
it's you know, and Escape from New York has its prop has problems of its own, but you you kind you can't let it slide. Uh, you can let it slide now, time. but it's definitely it's definitely not one of Carpenter's best movies. New York is, but not not LA. <laughs> no, not not LA. New York for sure. LA definitely not. So Kurt Russell is R.J. McCready. He is a pilot on this Antarctic base. They're doing kind of uh, some research project or whatever, and they discover some Norwegians attack their base and they go explore where they were holed up and they discover that everybody's body has been mutilated that still lived in that little campus. And when I'm thinking about it now, that's in the first 10 minutes that the Norwegians land at their base and just start firing at them. Well, not even just firing at them, like firing at the dog at first. And you're firing just... at, at firing at everybody. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like, this is such a great precursor to the paranoia that's about to come because th- this movie is a paranoia thriller. That's what it is. And like this, the thing itself has been frozen in Antarctic for 10,000 years. And it was awoken when the Norwegians dug it up and it lives based off of heat and on body. And it, it needs to attach itself to all life form to make itself whole again so it can freeze and wait for the next people to discover it. And fire is the only thing that kills it. That's like the exposition of the movie. I, did I do that well, Tommy? You've seen this. Yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially what it is. Uh, pretty much this is just an alien. I uh, don't know where it came from. It doesn't really matter, but uh, it's, yeah, if, you, if it touches you, you're pretty much fucked. <laughs> Well, I like how the exposition was really done in this movie because we do need some explanation for what's going on, but it's mm. more of a thesis than anything from the team. Like, and obviously it's accurate because it has to be for the movie, but it's them like discovering this. And one of the scientists who's played by Wilford Brimley, Dr. Blair, has to make, you know, makes the hypothesis that of, of how the thing hosts itself to other bodies. Tommy, do you think interacting with the thing gave Wilford Brimley diabetes? Uh, was, that, was that where it started right there with the di- diabetes? If you have type 2 diabetes like I have. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't expect that one. Uh, this was uh, his first movie. So I mean, like, you know, maybe Hollywood just took control of him because of this. After that, that's pretty good. <laughs> Still diabetes. It was very jarring to see him without the mustache because I feel like everybody our generation is only going to recognize him from the diabetes commercial. Yeah. And he is like the scientist and he ends up being like the main host of the thing, correct? Like at the end when the giant creature reveals it was him that they had isolated and they had correctly assumed was the the main host, the main source, host body. What's what's great is that uh, with Brimley is that they pretty much, um, you know, they lock him up at one point during the movie and then he's gone from like, what, like 40, 50 minutes in the movie for you almost kind of forget about him. And at that point- You definitely forget about him. Yeah, you definitely forget about him. And like, that was one of the reasons why they casted him as like some everyman, obviously it's before he became famous. They're originally going to have like Donald Pleasance in the role and it'd be too much because you'd be wondering like, where the hell's Donald Pleasance right now? You know, and it works, in, especially in the movie. And this, we're like, you know, Brimley obviously is a stature's gone up, but I still think it works in a little bit where you just don't really think about him for a little bit. I also think casting is like a really strong suit of this movie. I can't, outside of Wilford Brimley and uh, Nalls, uh, or I, or no, Child, sorry, who's Keith David's character, you know, n- 
they all have their little personality quirks, all the guys at the base, and they all like exhibit it when you're paying attention. Like you just see the little differences of how they interact, what makes them different, but it's not super stated. It's very subtle. It's very underneath the surface. And I really like that in this kind of movie because I think it adds to the tension as the tension increases, as they realize that the base has been infected, they start to distrust each other more and more. And the way that that like builds up and grows, I, I was like completely compelled. I couldn't look away from the screen the entire time. It's great. And um, what's awesome about the alien in this movie is that it's impersonating people, but it's not really obvious. Like in um, some movies, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where it's like, oh, the infected person has no emotions. These people, you don't know that they're the thing until literally the moment that they're fucking like opening up their jaws to like kill you. And that just brings so much more tension where in any scene, even on rewatches, you're thinking, is this guy the thing right now? Is this guy the thing? Over and over again. I really like when everybody thinks McCready's the, the thing. When he when they're out on an expedition and uh, I think Childs is the one who finds his like ripped up jersey. It's like a forty below storm or whatever, and he brings it in. And all the guys turn on him. He's ready to blow up the base, and then he comes up with this very clever plan to try to figure out who is infected and who isn't. Obviously, he's not going to perform it on himself, but for all the men on the base, oh, he, he does it on himself. He does it on himself. Oh, does he do it on? Okay, I miss, yeah. I Thanks. Thank you for clarifying, Don. We're going to draw a little bit of everybody's blood. Because we're going to find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. The blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. Crawl away from a hot needle, say. So that's like the beginning of this clip. And I love how the tension escalates, like the quipping back and forth as he drops more and more of the blood. And... Tommy, you'll have to tell me which guy ends up being the thing. They're all tied to the couch and to these chairs, like roped down. The guy is Palmer, um, is the character, but it's one, uh, even seen this movie like a hundred times you, in the beginning of the scene for, for a while, you can almost for, you kind of forget like which one it is. So the tension still keeps up and up. And it goes on for a while. Yeah, they literally let it draw out where they literally like the guy who is the thing is what, like the third or fourth person in. Yeah. And at that point, you have like, great tension where you're thinking, okay, like maybe none of them is the thing. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's all good. And then it gets to Palmer, and it's such an effective jump scare where immediately the blood comes out, and it's like, oh my fucking god! Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets into the crazy special effects. <laughs> and I noticed that he always has his hand kind of like palmed up, and they keep showing the same shot every time he tests the blood too. So you're very used to the like what image you should be seeing. And then when the jump scare actually comes, it actually shocks you because it's not told. It's not, I feel like a lot of times in like mediocre horror movies that, you know, they'll do it two times. And then the third time the camera starts to pan and zoom out and take place from like a different angle to like, it's basically letting the audience know it's coming. Yeah. This one, it's like, 
this could keep going for another 15 minutes. You have no idea how long they're going to keep running these blood tests for. It's it's insane in that aspect because yeah, like a, a terrible horror movie would just have no tension to it right there with the jump scare. We're just good. but and they tried to redo this in um, the remake and it just didn't work as well. It just like they I don't know, they just didn't, couldn't get the right tone right there. But this just is great at just keeping your suspenseful throughout, and um, it's the best scene in the movie, probably easily. This movie can't be remade in this current era or like the past era. Like a big, any studio funding anything it requires too much dialogue, requires too much space to be filled with talking. Like this movie, like I feel like at least a quarter of this movie is just silence. One, one of the things, uh, yeah, it's just a lot of like small character moments, but you know, this movie itself is a remake and it's kind of interesting to look at like how remakes are different from like when they were um, in the 80s or something like that, where Lily Carpenter, all he did was um, he liked the thing, original, the original movie, but then he didn't want to touch that really. So he went more to the novella of this, that this uh, whole movie franchise is based on and instead made it much more, um, you know, this like shapeshifting alien thing. Whereas in the, uh, the original movie, it was just like a guy in a suit that was just like an alien from another world. And you couldn't do that today because then today people would be like, well, you need this scene, you need that scene, you need that. Like, you need to respect the franchise that you're remaking and stuff like that. Whereas Carpenter, he's like, I don't give a fuck. We're just going to based on something else. And yeah, it's sure the same name, but there's not that much different, that much in common other than like, you know, the setting of the Antarctic. <laughs> I feel like one other thing about remakes is like, from what I under, I've never seen the original, the thing from outer space, but from what I understand, it's, it's decent, but it's, it's got its flaws. And I feel like this prob, from what I've read online, this kind of perfects a lot of the issues the other one has. I feel like the style in the eighties of remakes was taking movies that did okay and weren't great. And then enhancing, like having another set of eyes on them and enhancing them where today remakes are like the thing. Oh, this is this iconic movie let's make a prequel to it let's remake it robocop all these like 80s franchises but they don't have they don't serve any purpose and they're completely missing what made the original so great and the soul of those movies and like that's my big issue with like current day remakes and then don't get me started on the disney trend of taking these billion dollar animated yeah. movies and then making <laughs> the same movie again but it's live action well the main, the main problem is that it doesn't seem like as creative um is that like you know they just feel the need in, in like more modern day remakes just to recreate the, the iconic scenes over and over again where it's just like why don't you just like take the set basic setting and just like do something make your own of it you know you don't have to need incessant callbacks to such and such thing over and over again <laughs> yeah and it's like it's like because movies have become so like intellectually property driven it's like their studios are scared to take on original ideas but it's like there's like seven settings in any movie there's not it, you know seven settings like 10 different stories that you can really tell it's like it's how you tell it it's how you differentiate the style if you make people think like oh this movie is like this really popular movie i loved growing up i'll go see it under a new ip with doing it differently but kind of telling a very similar story I think that stands out way more than any like RoboCop remake, right? Like I, I think of John Wick as like the perfect example of pushing the boundaries of action movies forward when it could have very easily have just been like, what if we just take Keanu Reeves character from Speed 
and we just make him this badass action cop and now he's a bounty hunter or whatever right like, like yeah, yeah it could have just been a speed you know speed spinoff or whatever like because we got to get the the big title we got to get the big name to get people in the seats and i don't think that's necessarily true i just think studios are too scared to invest like 30 million dollars into something anymore because they're just waiting for they want to invest 150 million to make a billion yeah and there's just too much writing on it nowadays we're just like with in like star wars for example where it's just like you know you have to show that kind of the character right there or else the fandom's gonna get upset right there <laughs> don't yeah do we really want to go that, that's that's that's, that's, a, that's a whole other topic right there i'll i will say it's refreshing to hear taika watiti say that he wants to abandon any canon for whatever his sequel whatever his star wars it's just going to be its own thing which i think is the best thing that could happen to star wars because it's basically just like even the kenobi series i was like oh maybe this will be good and it's okay it's gotten better but it's like it's so reliant on like we have to have princess leia as a kid in it it's it's like yeah nostalgia of beta but um so uh, we, we've been talking about how great this movie is, obviously, and how much we loved it. And uh, one of the things that's crazy when you um, when you do like research on this is that people hated this remake. They hated the thing when it first came out. It uh, bombed at the box office. The week that we're releasing this is the week of its 40th anniversary. And for some reason, people just didn't latch onto it. I mean, wh- what do you think? Why? I mean, E.T. came out two weeks beforehand. Well, I was going to ask you that. Do you think that really played a big part into it like that was a pg movie versus an r movie but from like a critical standpoint you just saw like a masterpiece in et and then you go to the thing like because i saw the roger ebert review where he was just like it's it's bad body horror and i'm like it's not even that expansive like the tension is when the creature isn't in the room when it's just the guys and that's most of the movie it's one of those things that this movie has gone over such a critical reappraisal but uh timmy i'm gonna um give you some uh quotes that some of the critics said uh over the year when it first came out lay it on it's terrible it's like some of the worst reviews you ever heard so vincent canby said qualifies only as instant junk dave kerr says hard to tell who's being attacked and hard to care Ebert dismissed it as a knockoff of Alien. And uh, the guy who directed the original thing, the one from the 50s, said, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. And then the last one I want to bring up is Alan Spencer of Starlog, which was like a fan magazine at the time, said, Carpenter was never meant to direct science fiction horror movies. He's very suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. <laughs> Jesus. That, that, that is brutal. Yeah, people just eviscerated him for some reason. Like, there's like articles at the time as like the thing, the most hated movie of all time. I guess people just like thought that it was too gross. Like, oh god, these special effects are way too much. And it's just like they weren't able to see like everything else. Like, why we love the movie today? (laughs) I just really wish any Eli Roth movie was released at the same time as the thing, so they could have like comparison of like true gross out, like disgusting body horror movies compared to like. (laughs) the thing which is like has like seven minutes of effects in it yeah <laughs> it's not it's not nearly as bad i mean the effects still work and are so great but yeah it's not like we literally want to like I, I personally don't feel like i need a barf when i, when I see this forever or like you know gag <laughs> i think this is a case of a movie that could only be made in this era but it wasn't ready for its audience right like the audience was not ready for it yeah because like the subtle style like the the silence like just the true uh craftsmanship 
behind the filmmaking really like exudes. And I feel like if you like this kind of movie, if this released in 2003, probably catches on a lot better than it did when you think of like Saw or Final Destination or any of those movies that were you know, big horror movie franchises that kind of came out at the same time. This style, this much tension wouldn't have been made in that, you know, 20 years later. So it's like a very weird case. And like, I totally understand why it's now renowned as one of the great movies, you know, great horror movies of all time. Felt It feels more contemporary outside of like the chess master computer system that, that they're using. <laughs> That's the only thing that ages the movie. That, and I guess like the, like Space Invaders arcade game, wherever the fuck. <laughs> oh, that could still be at a base, right? Like they just brought it down yeah. there in the eighties. It's just still there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do find it interesting how hard it was panned because my first viewing of it, and I, I like to go into movies pretty blind. Like I knew I really didn't know what to expect. I couldn't believe how compelled I was just watching it. And I wish I was able to join you when you, you went and saw this in the theaters, correct? For this viewing? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I've seen this movie now twice in the theaters. This one was uh, through Fathom Events. And it was great seeing on the big screen, but Fathom, uh, this has been going on in the news lately, fucked up the screening so much where apparently nationwide, they cut the aspect ratio. Um, I forget the exact dimensions, but like a third of the movie was cut off when you saw on the big oh, screen. And then, oh. Yeah, so the first of all, that happened. And then second of all, um, the sound mix was terrible. At first, I thought I was like, oh, I'm just going deaf. Like, maybe this is why I can't hear it. But like dialogue was hard to hear at some points and stuff like that. And when I went to Twitter... And saw that other people were saying that with like the nationwide balance screens. I was like, okay, good. I'm not deaf. But this movie is great on the big screen. When I saw it at the Alamo Draft House uh, like five years ago, it was 75 millimeter or 70 millimeter print, and it was a sold out crowd. So, like, I don't know, 300 people in the theater. And it was just like one of the coolest theater experiences I've ever had, especially during the blood test scene, because people were all just like, you could feel the tension in the room uh, during those scenes. <laughs> yeah, I, I was watching it alone and I could if anybody like had walked in on me, they would have been, they would have been like, why are you so tense? And I'm like, just look, 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 look at what I'm watching. <laughs> look what's happening. <laughs> Very interesting that it was so panned. It, it was just a lot came out because like Blade Runner came out that same day. Uh, Blade Runner came out the same day as this movie. And both those movies can. This is better than Blade Runner. I'm not the biggest Blade Runner, original Blade Runner fan. No, I, I'd agree with you there, but yeah, there's just a lot of competition between that and ET just recently coming out. That I guess uh, for super whatever reason at the time, this just got dismissed and it fucked up Carpenter's career. He had a contract of Universal, um, like a multi-film contract, and they canceled it when this film bombed. <laughs> yeah, if this film did better, I think he probably has more bigger move. You know, like he probably gets bigger budgets because he never really gets budgets much bigger than like five to ten million dollars right if i from memory because everything escaped from la was like a lot but that was mostly because um what's his name um, kurt russell was in it yeah kurt russell was in it and kurt russell probably just like helped a lot of the budget right there but um I'm trying to look, look up what exactly that was, it was this like, had uh, this had a 15 million dollar budget and it made 19.6 so i mean it wasn't like it wasn't like a total bomb but it wasn't a box office success i guess but um, his biggest budget ever was Escape from LA. I just looked up, it was 50 million budget. So, but for the most part, most cover movies are like in the 10 to 5 million budget range. Yeah. And, and I know he, he got very jaded with Hollywood. And this probably feels like the start of that cynicism. 
that he developed because like he he just kind of produces music now he doesn't he doesn't direct or anything anymore yeah he hasn't made a film in like 20 years and now he does is like he does the scores for like random movies like the Firestar remake or the new Halloween movies that's what I like about the score too and it's a theme of amount about like throughout all of his movies because he does a lot of his own scores he didn't for this one though he did he didn't okay i thought he did the style was very carpenter-esque yeah the guy basically like found like a tune um it was in i'm trying to look up his exact name in nino morricona he also did the uh composing so yeah, um what's it called that tarantino movie hateful eight hateful eight yeah and he won oscar for but uh, yeah, basically, like he took like t- tons of Carpenter, and like you could really feel in some scenes where, like, even in this like shitty film screen that I was just talking about earlier, you could still hear the, the soundtrack just boom right there, and just like keeps you tense along with the rest of the movie. I, I like how directionless it is, though, right? Like, it's not like indicate, you know, like a lot of times there's a lot of indications in film scores of where things are going. It's way more ambiance and way more tone setting. And much less like trying to guide the audience in a in a specific direction. My one, it's not an issue. Do you think the climax of the ending, not like the 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 last scene in the movie, the climax of the ending? I feel like it was just like they ran out of budget, and they're like, "We got one stick of dynamite left. Here you go, Kurt Russell. You're gonna throw it at the." at this monster and that's it <laughs> throw, throw it at brimley thing that diabetes thing <laughs> yeah throw it at the diabetes monster <laughs> the thing should be repurposed as a diabetes ad that's what it should be like it shouldn't have if been you have type 2 diabetes like i had it should have been way they, they should have just aired this movie for an hour and a half being like this is what happens and you get and just like his face and this is what happens when you get diabetes. <laughs> it's constantly brimley <laughs> it's like one of those like before or after ads where it's just like before is just regular old Brimley and uh, after is the Brimley thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect, perfect, perfect marketing. I, I feel like, not that the climax is bad, just that it's like, it's like you see the creature for like 20 seconds and then he just blows it up. And like, I get it's out of desperation. Feels like, I feel like the movie could have used maybe 30 seconds more of just the creature. And I think we're both pretty well spoken of being like, if your movie can be shorter, make it shorter. I'm not saying add a lot of time to this movie. I'm just saying like add a you little more. You wish you got a little time. more like glory shots of uh, the monster at the end and everything. Yeah, just <laughs> like maybe him like striking down on him once or twice, right? Like just something added to the tension of it. It felt like, okay, we're out of time. We're out of budget. Throw the dynamite stick. We're done. Move on. Yeah, of all like the things, Blair thing, I think, wasn't the most compelling i mean earlier the guy norris who um his neck comes off he becomes the spider thing that was that was probably like the highlight of oh, special effects the, the the spider thing was awesome and like the tension when he, he couldn't get the flamethrower to work oh yeah 3D. like he's and he's just trying to get it thing and right as it's crawling out he's finally able to to zap it so awesome but the That's great i you know what I love about like the true ending though, the final ending. I love how there's still no trust. There's still no. So what? I, I like how it ends in a very ambiguous way. Um, yeah. So what do you think happened at the end? All right. Well, let's, oh, yeah, we, we, well, let's we, listen let's to it first. That. Come on, Tommy. You sent me this. You the only one who made it. 
Not the only one. Did you kill it? Where were you, Charles? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. If you're worried about me... If we've got any surprises for each other... I love how utterly exhausted they are and how they still do not trust each other whatsoever. Like the final big creature reveal and they're still like, we're probably infected. Like we should not survive the night. They, they both are just so distrustful of each other in that moment where they just like, they, they know that one of them might be the thing, but they are just so tired. They're like, yeah. If you kill me, you fucking kill me at this point. <laughs> like it's it's over for me. Do you, do um, you think they're infected? I go back and forth on it. Um, I I think that Kurt Russell might not be infected, but I think that uh, Keith David uh, Childs is definitely infected. Why do you think he's infected? Just like there's some some uh, the fact that he was away for so long is be almost too convenient if he was just randomly like, oh, I'm a human too. I'm so okay. I didn't get infected right there. There's some subtle things you kind of notice at times where like at the end of the scene, Kurt Russell, his breath is showing so much during that scene, or like over and over again. And you see Keith David, you don't really see it at all. His breath is very muted or whatever. So I think that's a sign. <laughs> I, do you think Carpenter actually had an intention of directing it? Or do you think it was just like, let's just film the ending? They went back and forth on the ending. Um, there was an original ending that was Childs and McReady both turn it and turn into a thing, and then they get rescued in like the spring, and they greet their savers, saying like, "Oh, like, hey, which way to a hot meal?" And Car- the Carpenter's like, "No, we can't do that. That'd be awful." Thank God they didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, and then there was another one where it was just uh, Kurt Russell by himself about Keith David and didn't really test well. So then he did this one where it was like, "Let's keep it on an ambiguous note," and I think it's. The perfect ending for this movie. I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star. Who is the star of this movie, Todd? If not Kurt Russell, I guess we have to do an honorary shout-out to Rob Oteen for the special effects. <laughs> yeah, I mean, acting-wise, it's definitely Kurt Russell. Like, you can tell why he's become a star. He's so cool and collected. Even when he's fully paranoid, It's you still want to trust trust him for whatever reason he's just like he's not reassured whatsoever but he always has like a hint of reassurance in his voice i feel like in all of his movies he has that that's like maybe his best like dialect trait that's like consistent he he was great in this do you think this is his best performance in any of the carpenter movies it's very close between this or snake bliskin for me i think uh, from escape from new york they're a little more similar than Big Trouble in Little China, where I'm blanking on the guys, Jake something, uh, right? Jack, Jack, Bur- Jack Burton. <laughs> Jack Burton, right? Like he's, he thinks he's the hero, but he's not. And it's way, it's a little more goofy than these, than those two, where this one, he's a little more, 
stern and collected like in this kid from new york he's basically doing clint eastwood impressions yeah <laughs> i think he even admitted that where he's like yeah i'm just ripping off eastwood <laughs> yeah and more we think we talk about it, i guess this is probably at least up there for carpenter his best performance <laughs> yeah and as we're not discrediting the rest of the cast like keith, keith david was excellent in this role i just you know he's the lead for a reason and i was compelled by him the entire way through and watching him slowly devolve and get caught up in the paranoia among the men because like there's a point where he kind of takes over as like the lead in there and then like 10 minutes later he's joined the men as like fully paranoid so like you're the most calm and collected and cool and he wasn't caught up to everybody and this is just such a great example of a movie where it's so nice to not have like the creature overload like it's just the right amount of of creature because the real horror is between the relationships of the men fracturing like that's what really drives this movie and and makes it the classic that it is today they they really just let the tension between the the crewmates essentially just simmer slowly it's a very slow slimmer at first where it's just like Okay, yeah, this is happening. <laughs> ah, are you ready, comedy partner? Waka waka. Would this movie work as a Muppet adaptation, Tommy? I feel like you would know better than I. No. <laughs> it, 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 I, it, it'd just be too weird seeing like what, like the Gonzo spider head thing or whatever, like just crawling around or something. It'd be too goofy. That'd be <laughs> perfect. That'd be so, it'd be so goofy that it would work just because it's those damn adorable puppets instead of like the neck stretching out it's just like you see felt stretching out or whatever yeah and like when he's out like Fozzie's on the thing and his stomach opens up and it's and he's like chopping the other guy he's chopping yeah. uh like sam the eagle or something like that just <laughs> i, 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 like I, I can see it. i would like but to would see kurt it. would kermit have to be kurt russell <laughs> i think you keep kurt russell as a human and everybody else is a muppet <laughs> one of us isn't human <laughs> so i got kurt russell you mean uh, all of us <laughs> yeah i would, I would th- see that would be funny that would be funny <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. they just think the muppets are human I, i'm in i'm i'm in uh, uh, you may not want it but i do so disney <laughs> i know you're listening review time tommy give me a final okay. score okay so like i said this is um one of my favorite movies of all time um one of the best even posters. I mean, I have a framed poster of this movie in my freaking apartment. And it's just the tense intensity, the special effects, the performances, Carpenter's direction, the score, just there's nothing about this movie I can really complain about. And it's an endless, I watch, rewatch this all the time, at least once a year. And I can't wait to watch it again. So five out of five stars. Five out of five stars. Call myself a cognac. And I watch. The 14 fists of McCluskey. What a picture. What a picture. Good, good picture. Are we just picking too many great movies, Tommy? Because now we're on our third What a Picture. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give it a five out of five as well. Because I'm really not the biggest horror fan. But this movie is so engrossing. And I, I can't think of many films that have tension that builds quite like this. Like where you just cut it through the screen with a knife like you just feel it in the air and that's so impressive to me we mentioned like the cinematography being great 
the special effects being great, the cast being perfectly casted. I can't really speak of anything ill other than maybe the ending being like 30 seconds longer, like the climax. Other than that, you're sitting down for a true master class of, of horror. And I would highly recommend this movie to anybody. Yeah. 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 This is one that I think one of the few uh, five out of five star movies that we both gave five stars. <laughs> no, I'll th- no, I, no, maybe. I don't know. So Tommy. It's been a while. Any last thoughts? Any last words? Uh, so once again, this movie fucking rocks. Thanks again, guys, for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod and TikTok too. And leave us a five-star review. It really helps out the pod. And uh, we have a good schedule coming up next month, Tim. Well, we're covering Forrest Gump next week. And that's where we could kick off our July. <laughs> for the 4th of July weekend, you're all going to hear about why life is like a box of chocolates. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.